0: Welcome to Our Head House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Marianne has a truly epic interview this week, and I am completely jealous because Olympia Osset is a woman with a plan and a woman after my own heart. (laughs) I I can't believe you got to do this interview, but I'm excited about it. She actually has not just one plan, but like a lot of plans, all focused on getting people who live in poor neighborhoods the opportunity to eat good food. So Marianne will be exploring with her how she plans to do that and so much more, including how she came to be vegan for herself, for her community, and of course, for the animals.
1: And this week on the bonus segment, you'll be hearing more of my conversation with Olympia, which... I have to say, I really love this conversation. As always, if you're a Flock member, you'll get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast goes up. You can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. If, like me, you you have emails like coming out of your ears and you can't keep track of them, don't worry, we got you covered. It's on the F- Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you could afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhandhouse.org/ donate.
0: Also, we're doing our Flock Friday Zoom calls at 4 p.m. Eastern on Fridays, which is an extra COVID time feature for us. Sometimes it's just the Flock, and sometimes we feature special guests. Recently, we welcomed vegan investment advisor Brenda Morris. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at henhouse.org. When you just said we've got you covered, I thought of that video we made, which was like new york city vegan weekend on a budget yeah Yeah. remember that that was a great video yeah that was and i unfortunately i think that a lot of the places are are not around anymore because it was like over a decade ago
1: i mean that's not a that's not a reflection on veganism it's more a reflection of yeah, how tough the restaurant biz is. Yeah, but we, but yeah, it was a lot of fun making that. I just remember saying, "You've got you covered." <laughs> and then, yeah, like, I to- you're totally
0: every right. Every time I hear that turn of phrase, I think of that video and and how we shot it in like one day, one like thirteen hour day. <laughs> and,
1: and I we, brought. We it, pretended. We pretended we were on different days, and I brought like, like, you like costume clothes. changes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's right. That's right. That was awesome. Oh no! I want to watch it. Yeah, people can watch. People can watch it. Yeah, right? Google like it's it. available somewhere. New York City Vegan Weekend on a Budget. It is a fun video.
1: Right.
0: Yeah. So this morning I woke up and per usual, like with one eyeball open, I read New York Times, which is what I. Well, I woke up this
1: morning. You were on my. Mind.
0: Sorry. What's, what was that? What song was that? You were.
1: On... I started it in the wrong key. I started it way up here. You always
0: <laughs> like... do. That and now that's too high. You always do and that. At the
1: low is too low. It's, well, I woke up this morning. You were on my mind. Yes, you were on my mind. It's an old Peter, Paul and Mary song. Wow.
0: That came from a file folder yep. somewhere in the back of your I'm head. Old. So anyway. It's true. I'm this old. This morning when I was reading the New York Times, I came across this article that I had, like, I was super intrigued about. And it is... It's a review. It's called The Ugly and Glorious Truth About American Supermarkets. And it's about a book called The Secret Life of Groceries by Benjamin Lohr. And I was like, "Ooh, you know, like I, I'm, I just wanted to know what what this could be about. And in the teaser, it talked about how he even went as one of the things he did to explore the sort of dark underbelly behind all of the aspects of grocery stores he went undercover into factory farms with some animal activists. So I was like, oh, what's where's this going to land? Of course he'll go vegan because this is a book that basically explores every aspect of things that we buy at the grocery store from like the ordinary to the posh and the ethics of it. And it gets into like, you know, kind of Trader Joe's culture and things like that. Anyway, so I'm reading it, reading it, reading it. And I, you know, was like, it sounds okay, I didn't like the part about fishing because he's certainly not vegan, I learned at that point in the article. Then I get to the end. But he was talking very
1: harshly about the... The modern day slavery in the in the fishing industry. He talked about the exploitation of truckers, how they used to make good money and they just don't anymore. How people in supermarkets like have really hard jobs because they're expected kind of to be on call all the time. Their schedules keep changing Mm -hmm. according to the needs of the supermarket. So it's really hard for them to get second jobs. All this stuff.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to just read the last three paragraphs of this review in The New York Times. I'm not sure it's a review. It's just I think it's just
1: an article about the book. Okay,
0: He felt overwhelmed, but also awed when he sneaked into a windowless warehouse-sized industrial egg farm in California and saw thousands of chickens stacked in cages. I walked away thinking, this is exactly the misery I expected, he said, but it also wasn't a hellscape. More than anything, it seemed like an apt metaphor for the agricultural industrial complex that keeps our supermarket aisles stocked with an endless array of grocery options at the lowest possible prices. I thought this is what it looks like to feed 7 billion people, Mr. Lohr said. The human project has reached an absurd level and our food supply reflects that absurdity. He added, I had eggs the next morning. And the piece ends. How many things are wrong with this? Every fucking thing. By the way, I just want to give a shout out to the person who wrote this, which is Alex Williams, just because, you know, he wrote it and we're talking about yeah. it. Yeah. So. No, you should do okay. that. Yeah. So everything is wrong with this. Like, I really. Oh, I hate Alex Williams too. Well, okay. I mean, he, we don't know what his take is totally, except I did wonder what, what. Alex Williams was thinking about that last line. I had eggs the next morning. Like, was he was he like kind of tongue in cheek about her or was he smiling when he wrote it? Because like <laughs> it's funny to exploit animals. No,
1: he was not making fun of the writer. That's for sure. He was not revealing this guy's hypocrisy. Absolutely not. That's ridiculous. Right. He was letting himself. And his readers off the hook mm-hmm. by saying this guy knows it
0: all, and he knows it's bad, but still you can eat eggs just like he does, right? And and so many things to unpack here. Like, missed the the author was at this factory farm with animal activists. You know, people who give a fuck. Like they actually care. They were actually trying to do something good, and. You know, I just want to zero in on the line. Yeah, We actually
1: don't know who he was with exactly, but it does indicate he was with animal activists. I mean, I guess it would be useful to read the book to make sure whether this is a fair depiction, but I ain't reading this book. No,
0: but he said no way. So let's talk about the part where he says it's miserable, but not a hellscape. Now, exactly what the fuck does that mean? Like it's miserable,
1: but not a hell where where does do do I have it like in my mind? What is the line drawn between what is miserable and what is a health? What does that mean?
0: Well, I think that what he meant. Okay, so I think that what he meant was what he went on to say about the absurdity of overpopulation and how this is. Well, this is what it looks like. It's absurd because it's absurd that we're overpopulated to this degree, and so I think he was saying yeah it sucks but this is what it takes and well, I so I think he was saying you know- that it's
1: bad but you know like like these chickens are miserable But they're not literally living in hell. Like I think he was saying, it's not that bad. Right. It's really bad. Mm -hmm. But it's not that, it's bad enough that I can put up with it. It's it's really, really bad. But they're They're not so bad that I can't eat my eggs tomorrow morning. Right. It's not a hellscape, even though it's Well, and
0: anyway. Like, what the fuck? It's just idiotic. Well, and anyway, it's a metaphor. That's what he said. It's a metaphor. No, that's what,
1: like that's, you know that's the thing that drives me crazier than anything. Yeah. Like, it, and animals, are, animals not metaphors. are a metaphor yeah they're not metaphors they're living creatures who are suffering who are miserable even though they're not in a hellscape whatever the fuck like like they're not a metaphor. Yeah. No. This is the this is the problem. This isn't a, like a metaphor for the problem. This is the problem.
0: I think it was this guy like sidestepping, making ethical choices because he feels that everything is rooted in a lack of ethics. So therefore, where do you start? I mean, certainly not with eggs. Exactly. They're just chickens. Exactly. I mean, so there was like it's ironic because it seems like this art, this book was It's so big. This you book can't was fix coming it. from a place of investigative. Re- Reporting, which is a form of activism, right? And yet, he just he stopped way short of making any actual change. Like, no, he kind of says you can't. Right? There isn't a, you know, like you
1: can't. He says that even more clearly when he's talking about the shrimp trade. Mm -hmm. You know, and he's talking about, of course, he's not talking about the shrimp, but um, but he's talking about like how there's slavery in Mm -hmm. the shrimp trade and it's a really brutal industry. Um, And and it says he interviewed immigrants from Burma who had been former prisoners on these fishing Mm. boats. But then he says, this is a literal quote, but there's not much that Americans can do as consumers to improve working conditions abroad. A boycott sounds compelling, but because of the volume and complexity of the supply chain, it's overly simplistic. Right. There are so many good actors caught up with the bad, like bullshit. Bullshit. Like, don't buy this stuff. Like, Like. Of course, you have to do other things systemically. I mean, this is the conversation we have all the time, individual action and systemic action. Yeah, but of course, there are things that can be done. There are always things that can be done. Mm-hmm. And the first and simplest thing is can, that can be done is stop buying shrimp. Like if there's slavery in the shrimp, and like stop buying it, it buy also, something
0: it, better. It, it makes me think of uh, the whole thing about like, you know, when we're talking about, when we're advocating for veganism and we say, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the, the, enemy of the good. That doesn't mean don't do nothing. You know? It's Exactly. So, it's like Exactly. Well, yeah, there's there's animal there's animal exploitation in the tires on our car, sure. But like <laughs> that doesn't mean that we go partake in some heinous. Yeah.
1: And and just you being vegan isn't going to change anything. It's true. Like one individual making an action is not going to change anything, but nothing is ever one person making an action. Like when you make an action, it influences other people. And aside from your individual actions, your individual actions should be coordinated with with your political work. I mean, that's how change happens. It's not one or the other. They feed each other.
0: He wrote another book as well about like, uh, you know, yoga class and just kind of the bullshit of of. A lot of the Americanized take well, on, well, particularly hot yoga. yoga, hot yoga, right? And I just think he sees these chickens in the same way as he sees those like yoga class attendees, which of course you can't you can't say that because the chickens don't have a choice, whereas the people who go to Bikram yoga are are forcibly doing that to themselves for some reason. But he just sees them all as groups of individuals who are part of an eye roll worthy system. You know, as a and he thinks he's so
1: he thinks he's so cool. There's a little picture of him with his scruffy beard in Brooklyn, like juggling apples. Like he thinks he's so cool. He thinks he's such a lefty. He thinks he's identified all the problems, but he doesn't actually think that anybody should do anything about them because it's all too big and too complicated. And like, yeah, let's just all give up. Great, and let's just buy eggs and have them for breakfast because, huh? What are you going to do? So you get to feel good about, you know, about everything you're doing. Like you get to feel like you're a big, Mm -hmm. big liberal and, and, and you know what the ethics are, but you know, you don't actually have to do anything about it. Right.
0: Yeah. This was an annoying. So you get
1: to the combination. You've, you get to be the cool guy who, who understands what's wrong and, and you, you get to eat eggs for breakfast.
0: The good thing is that like we were talking about this article, and then we realized that Olympia is on today's show, which is yeah. the absolute. We didn't even
1: plan it. We didn't plan it. I swear. Well, this is
0: the perfect counterpoint because can you give us a glimpse into like what you'll be talking with her about? Even though, even though I know it's coming up soon, I, she she's talking about the ethics of groceries, right? Grocery stores.
1: Yeah, and she's actually doing something about it. Right. She's actually she's actually found ways to bring organic fruits and vegetables well i don't want to give the interview away
0: sorry i'm excited
1: she's actually doing imagine that actually doing something about it it just reminds me of people who talk about privilege this is like you know and how terrible it is and and it's really i really feel bad about how i have all this privilege Mm -hmm. but you know that's a shame but uh, oh well that's (laughs) tough shitty (laughs)
0: yeah exactly (laughs) Hi, Vey. Well, okay, let's move on to something more positive because I'm super excited about the interview with Olympia. But before then, we have the Arjen Supports Vegan Businesses program, which I also love, especially because in the time of COVID, there are a lot of businesses suffering, and especially vegan businesses are suffering. So each week, we try to chat a little bit about some of the businesses that have hit our radar in the past week. And one of them is My Cat Jeffrey Bookstore and Cat Lounge in Phoenix, Arizona. So you can you can learn more at mycatjeffreybooks.org. I'm going to spell you have to spell that because Jeffrey is. Yeah, Yeah. it's J-E-O-F-F-R-Y. Mycatjeffreybooks.org. And do you want me to chat about this or do you want to? Sure. Either way. Well, okay, so Tanya Plank, who is the founder, is a Flock member, and she actually joins us each week on our Flock Fridays, which it's been lovely getting to know her and so many of the other people who join our Flock calls. And we were so stoked when she started talking about this because she is a lifelong lover of animals and books. And so she decided to combine her passions and start this nonprofit bookstore for animal lovers, along with a lounge full of adoptable animals cats, which I love so much. And she says that the mission of My Cat Jeffrey Bookstore and Cat Lounge, which is named after an 18th century poem glorifying the virtues of cats, is to foster empathy for animals through literature and education. She says we want to be a meeting place where the community can learn about and celebrate animals, and they seek to improve literacy and compassion through reading and writing by hosting therapy sessions where patrons can practice reading to an animal and writing programs where young people can write a story about a favorite animal to be included in a published book. And they want to end the murder of cats, the euthanasia of cats in shelters by providing patrons a home-like environment to spend time with and socialize with cats. So because of the pandemic, they haven't yet opened physically, but they're currently online. Again, it's mycatjeffreybooks.org. And they do hope to have an actual spot in Phoenix in late spring 2021. And you've already yeah, gotten you a order, book from them. Yeah, you
1: can order books from them at, on bookshop.org, which, of course, is that is it bookshop.org or dot com. I forget that allows you to order books uh, and buy books from your favorite local bookstore.
0: That's yes, cool. bookshop.org. Yeah, yeah. I love it. So, and you know, there, she's vegan. So there's a ton of vegan books right there on the homepage. Oh yeah, loads of animal themed books. Not just cats. Uh, Not just cats. Mostly cats. Cat, or, or prime, like
1: cats have the the forefront position, but there are many, many other animals. I did species.
0: notice that Tanya carries my first book, Always Too Much, Never Enough. So I appreciate that. And if, if someone, this is a total shameless plug, but if you want to read it, get it through, get it through this place. <laughs> get it through uh, My Cat Jeffrey Bookstore and Cat Lounge. So,
1: our second business is Good Girl Chocolate. I love that name. I love this store. I want to know more about it. I want to eat their food. It's a it's one of our black owned businesses and they they ship vegan chocolates across the US and they're gluten-free, dairy-free, and naturally sweetened. It's guaranteed to appeal to your sweet tooth, satisfy your chocolate craving. She's I have both of those <laughs> and um, it is made with organic low glycemic sweeteners. It sounds amazing. The chocolates on here. It looks so good. Mm. So the founder is Dr. Tabitha and she created good girl chocolate because she had a difficult health journey and she struggled with weight and health issues and and she decided to have some fun in the kitchen and look for ways to make a positive experience. And now she wants to share chocolate with you to mm. help fuel your mind, body and spirit. And boy, this chocolate looks so yummy. You can find them at goodgirlchocolate.com.
0: She wants to share a chocolate with me? Yes. Thank you. She I...
1: wants everybody out there to order chocolate and send it to
0: you. I love it. Perfect. Okay. We have another one. Our final business that we're featuring this week is Shared Planet at sharedplanet.com. Shared Planet is a new vegan beauty brand. It was created with one mission in mind, which is to bring awareness to at-risk animals in an effort to help ensure a future for them. So, they're taking the concept of clean beauty to the next level with products that are mindfully created to actually really make a difference. And the brand launched with three color cosmetic collections Tiger, Polar Bear, and Sea Turtle. Each collection, which is inspired by both the animal and its natural habitat, pushes the boundaries of color and performance while also bringing visibility to the issues that each one faces today. This is actually the brainchild of 18 year old. Ashna Sharma, who is a young woman who has spent much of her early life enjoying nature-oriented travel with her family, which I love. And, you know, her trips that she took with her family enabled her to experience animals across lots of parts of the world in their natural habitat. So the older she got, the more aware she became of how many of those animals ended up on the endangered list, which is really a mind-bending amount year after year. And she knew that she wanted to raise awareness, so she decided to use her love of beauty to do that, and thus Shared Planet, which puts the focus on the pursuit of social and environmental change before all else. They donate 10% of sales to protect the animals that inspired the collections through the organizations Panthera and Polar Bears International and the Sea Turtle Conservancy. I'm excited to learn about Shared Planet because it is all about being cruelty-free and I know that they've been partnering with social media influencers who are also passionate about animals. So check it out at SharedPlanet.com. Super cool.
1: Yeah, sounds really cool.
0: And so is our interview today. So let's get to that. Olympia Osset is the founder of Supermarket, which is spelled S-U-P-R-M-A-R-K-T, basically no vowels, a low cost organic. Ger- there, there,
1: are two, there are two vowels in there. Oh, my God. Okay.
0: (laughs) Well, I said basically no vowels. (laughs) It's missing the E's, okay? No E's. No E's. Uh, Sorry, everyone. And there's an
1: umlaut over the U. I love an umlaut. I love umlauts, too. I just love an umlaut.
0: (laughs) Okay, supermarket with no E's and an umlaut is a low-cost organic grocery that makes it affordable to eat well in South Central and other neighborhoods across LA. Since its founding in 2016, Supermarket has distributed organic produce through its pop-up markets and weekly delivery service. Olympia also currently serves on the board of directors for Co-Opportunity and on the production team for the Shine movement. You're going to hear Marianne's interview with Olympia Asset right after this. Our henhouse has a family of podcasts. In addition to the Our Hen House podcast, which you're listening to right now. You can also listen to the Animal Law podcast or the Teaching Jasmine How to Cook Vegan podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear and what's not to like, please, please leave us a friendly review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us tremendously because that's how we grow. And that's how we reach more and more people with information on how to change the world for animals. Thanks for listening.
1: Welcome to our henhouse, Olympia. Hi. Such a pleasure to have you. I can't wait to find out more about this really exciting work that you're doing in Los Angeles. Before we start, we talk about what you're doing. Let's start by giving folks some background about the food situation for folks living in South L.A., and actually, which is typical of a lot of neighborhoods around the country. And after that, we'll get into, into your story and the supermarket story. So tell us a little bit, what is the situation about food in South
2: L.A.? It's just hard to get quality food in South Central. Um, South Central has 1.3 million residents and only 60 grocery stores. We want to make that 61 grocery stores by opening the first full-service organic grocery in South Central, um, which will also be a completely vegan. Um, Having grown up here, I've sort of gone through the stages and just have witnessed for many years the disparities between one side of town and the other, and the impact that that actually has on people's lives. Growing up, we were told that we were more prone to certain conditions as African-Americans, whether it's heart disease or diabetes, et cetera. And having been vegan for 11 years, when I got home from college, I started to understand why um, so many people were passing away at 40 or 50 years old from these preventable diseases. There just wasn't much food around.
1: It is important to to figure out the causes of these things, and I think that's become so much more powerful right now when um, we're seeing the coronavirus have such a huge impact on the black community. And, you know, sometimes reports on it just, just act as if that's, that's just one of those things, you know, this like lactose intolerance, It, it affects this community and not that community, but there's a lot more going on there, isn't there?
2: Yeah, definitely. And you bring up a really good point. I often use the term food apartheid because food desert even, built into the idea of a food desert is the idea that it occurs naturally because deserts occur naturally. But food deserts are actually a result of redlining policy um, and you know institutional racism and the fact that certain companies make a lot of money off of people eating a certain way and the hospital bills that ensue afterward. African-Americans lead every other ethnic group in deaths from preventable disease. So heart disease, cancer, diabetes, stroke, um, we're all number one in all those categories. That's definitely directly tied to the kinds of foods that are available in our neighborhoods. And it's really a subtle form of genocide that's occurring um, that people don't really recognize when they talk about um, issues facing communities across the country. America spends about a billion dollars a day on healthcare related to preventable diseases and That money could be used um, to improve communities nationwide. So it definitely is something that is seen as just happens that way. And we're definitely wanting to open everyone's eyes to the fact that it's not naturally occurring.
1: This is really such a powerful point. You know, even if a certain population, and if the African American population has more of a tendency towards heart disease, maybe it's not just the food. I don't actually know because, you know, this stuff doesn't get studied enough. But even if that's the that's a fact, these are preventable, uh, regardless of what community you're in. So it's just even more powerful to think about how important food is and and more disturbing about how hard it is to get good food. If there is more of a tendency toward those diseases in in certain communities, they should be getting better food, not worse food than everybody
2: else. And you know that you bring up another good point You know, there's this idea that people of color are more inclined to certain diseases. And the the truth is that people of color are less adapted to the Western diet. And, you know, so through colonization, there are places around the planet that used to have seven cases of cancer in the entire country based on their indigenous diet that they were eating, which was mostly plant based. And there are many instances where when you see colonization and imperialism come onto the island and um, people starting to follow the Western diet, that's when there are instances of cancer and heart disease and all of these diseases go up. So most of us are actually best adapted to plant-based diets, and that's what our ancestors were mostly eating before we were moved somewhere else or before someone else moved in
1: yeah, so all of these things can be true, but there's they all kind of have the same answer in, and and has to do with diet. These diseases may be more prevalent, but it's the combination of not being adapted, plus the imposition of these these uh, much more, well, meat focused but also unhealthy and other way diets. But before we get into the ways that you're addressing it, which are very, very powerful, Let's just talk a little bit about your your personal experiences. How did you come to be focused on this
2: issue and on on South Central? You grew up there, right? Yeah, I'm from Los Angeles. I grew up across LA and most of my younger years were spent in South Central. And, you know, as a child you don't really notice a lot of the differences. You're quite happy to eat junk food all day and as much fast food as you can get your hands on. <laughs> That's for sure. And so a lot of my awareness and transformation came by my experiences and what I learned in college. I started to understand in my freshman year that food was actually a tool um, that could either be a weapon for the destruction of people and people's minds or for their collective upliftment. And I decided I no longer wanted to take part in my community's destruction via food and in in the destruction of myself as well. So I tried veganism out um, in my freshman year. I just said that it was something that I wanted to try and do by the end of 2019. But it ended up not taking very long. I started in January and by maybe March or something, I was mostly vegan. And I never really looked back after that. So it definitely had a really big impact on my life. Right around 2015 or 2016, I moved back to um, community in South Central, right on the border between LA and Inglewood. And it was very challenging for me because I had been vegan for a few years by that time. I was transitioning to raw vegan. And every time I needed food, I was having to get on the bus two hours or two and a half hours round trip just to get fresh, healthy food. Everything around was liquor stores and fast food chains. And the couple of stores that were in the area, a lot of these chains have the habit of bringing food that is expiring from a nicer side of town, such as the west side of L.A., and dumping it in South Central or whatever the food desert community is. So a lot of times when you walk into these oh. stores, they kind of smell like death. They smell really bad and you'd be hard pressed to find anything fresh and healthy and quality. Um, I even heard a really sad story on a presentation that I did a couple of weeks ago and, you know, they work with youth and one of the fellows was like, oh, like, doesn't milk just expire the next day? Like, they were just talking about how how sad mm-hmm. it, that milk is. And they just thought it was normal just because that's mostly what they were able to get their hands on a lot of times. So um, definitely wanted to just shed light on what the actual lived realities are of people in the communities that i come from. Because so much of the time, a big part of the problem is that people do not know what's going on in neighborhoods that are not theirs. And they don't see how it's connected to their lives, too. And so... Food deserts are one of the things that we can solve if more people know what's going on and understand why it needs to be fixed. That really
1: is a really touching, that little detail, that question about doesn't milk expire the next day? Uh, You know, nobody on either side of this knows like the differences that people are living, yeah. So uh, I love that you're shedding light on it. And I'm really, really impressed that you found out about food while you were in college. I don't think a lot of people do. I mean, I know you went to Howard, which, you know, is a historically black college. And do you think there is more emphasis or did you just get lucky that you were exposed to these issues once you got to college?
2: I feel extremely fortunate. I thank my lucky stars every day for the information that I was able to come across at a really young age. I'm very grateful. It actually wasn't through the classroom that I learned, um, the things that I learned when I was in college, just about the way the world works and sort of the things they never teach you in school. It was through these sessions called Power Study Groups, which were sort of like an independent club that would meet once a week. We would put our own minds together to figure out answers to certain questions that we had. So it wasn't like someone was lecturing us. We had to figure things out on our own. And that was really powerful for me because experience is the best teacher and, you know, you only learn so much by being told. Wow. I'm, I'm really grateful that I was able to learn the things I learned.
1: Yeah, that is amazing. And I really hope that's happening in more colleges because people really just don't know a lot about food. Yeah. You know, it, and, and the fact that it was a historically Black college could, you know, have some impact on why you were exposed to these issues because veganism truly is exploding. In the African American community. I mean, much, much more than I I think any other ethnic group. Can you tell us about the causes? And are you, do you see this in your real life? I mean, of course, your real life is involved around food, but do you think it's having an impact on the way people are, or a lot of people are eating, even if they're not actually going vegan?
2: There's a few things um, tied into that. So yes, I did go to an HBCU and there's a history there of struggle and triumph and consciousness and things like that that is sort of woven through the ages of my particular school, whether you want to start with like Zeronee Hurston or just any of the really incredible freedom fighters that went to that school. So that is a part of the fabric of the school that I went to. But then when we start to talk about veganism there is a history of veganism in the African-American community, whether you're talking about the fact that many people try to have gardens, even if they were on the plantation because they were only being given scraps. And then, you know, after enslavement, a lot of people in my community didn't eat a lot of meat just for the simple fact that it was expensive to eat a lot of meat. And a lot of our traditions were passed down from Africa of eating a mostly plant-based diet and using certain greens, etc., and so a lot of the issues that we started to face started to come after we moved to the city through white flight and urbanization and things like that. Our diet changed drastically. Our diet was obviously changed um, via enslavement, which gave us a lot of problems with pork, etc. But a lot of this just sort of the epidemic that we face now came through, you know, sort of the urban development or, you know, just people moving away from farms. I always try to remind people or just let people know that we have people in our community like Dr. Sabi and Aris Latham, et cetera, that have been vegan for decades. And there there are people in New York and in Harlem, you know, whose grandparents were totally. vegan, et cetera. Um, so there is a history of veganism in our community, whether it's in the Rasta community or in the African-American community that a lot of people see veganism as a mainstream sort of white thing but there definitely are Black vegans that have been here for decades, and it's important for everyone to recognize that on both sides. As far as the current explosion and what is happening, I would credit a lot of it to information. Previously, people were able to get away with these myths. Um, you know, the medical establishment, food establishment, was ever able to have everyone convinced, like hey, all this stuff is genetic. There's nothing you can do about it. If you get diabetes, you're going to be sticking yourself with insulin for the rest of your life. If you get heart disease, your only option is surgery, et cetera. And so there's just a lot of lies, frankly, that have been told about health. And so I think veganism taking off in our community just has to do with we suffer the most from these conditions. And we're finally getting to the point where information is available that these conditions are reversible through diet, um, especially diabetes. Diabetes is something that it really upset me to find out was reversible because I know so many people that have passed away from it, been affected by it. And this entire time, I'm seeing with my own eyes people that have reversed this within a month through diet, and their bodies are producing insulin. So it's a combination of the fact that the information is out there, and then additionally, um, you know, the manufacturing and the the kinds of foods are catching up. To what people actually eat. I think in the past, vegan food was very bland. And a lot of times, sort of like popular veganism, is not culturally relevant, whether you're Indian, Mexican, whether you're Black, et cetera. There needs to be more information and experiences out there about how do you make your own cultural foods plant based. And the more mm-hmm. that continues to increase, the more we're going to see more vegans of color. And the more affordable veganism becomes, the more you'll see vegans of color.
1: Do you see also? as more people go vegan, or at least become open to these issues, that there's also interest and and excitement about the, like, there's almost a rebellious spirit to what you're talking about, saying we're not going to do this the way it's been been fed to us, literally fed to us anymore. And do you see also any kind of awakening around the other issues in veganism, the environmental issues and and the animal rights issues? And did that happen for
2: you as well? So for me personally, I can definitely speak to my personal experience of going vegan based on health reasons. And then, you know, as the years kind of went by, you know, I really believe in consciousness and spirituality. I think a lot of the awakenings that we're seeing on the planet have to do with the collective consciousness reaching a certain level. And for me personally, you know, I, I believe that if you take one step, the universe will take the other two steps for you. Like once you start on the path, we're all going to the same place whether we start up as an environmental. Vegan, a compassionate vegan, or a health based vegan, and so that—that's what happened to me. Is like I became more aware of—I don't want to say humanness, but just the feelings of animals. Um, as I went along, I remember going to a meditation retreat and coming home. I think it was like 2013 or 2014, and you know, while you're there it's only vegetarian food prepared. Um, You can make it vegan based on what you eat. You're not allowed to kill anything for 10 days. Like that's one of the precepts that you have to agree to before you get there. And I remember coming home after that and there was like a spider in the tub. And whereas I might've killed the spider previously, I could almost hear the spider. Like I was that sensitive and I could like feel the fear that the spider had and the spider didn't want to be squished, you know? From that point on, like I was compassionate towards animals and I could actually, I think it's a sensitivity issue. We're very desensitized, to, desensitized in the society. Most of us are not on the farm, around plants or around animals. And so we have no clue whether animals have feelings or not or have intelligence or not. And so once you start to grow your own food and just get back in touch with yourself and who you really are and you're eating better, I think it's naturally occurring that people start to care more about animals what I will say is that for our particular, our community in particular, the most pressing issue is our health because we are literally dying from the foods that we're eating. So I do think it is impractical to expect people to care about environmentalism first or compassion towards animals first when we're already facing so much. So I think it's important to really support people wherever they are in their starting place. And just help them, like support them in what they need to do. And then along the line, the rest will do do work for itself. Is how I believe things work.
1: I totally agree. I, I this isn't the most elegant way of putting it, but sometimes I I like to say like it's just a matter of people getting the meat out of their ears, like mm-hmm. so that they can hear yeah. what's actually going on. Because it's hard to start thinking about what farm animals are going through when you're still eating them. Like, that's not the moment. <laughs> you just can't. It's, you're just blocked from having those thoughts. But once you stop eating them, yeah, you can You can think about them in whole new ways and, right. and pay attention to what's going on. So it, I, I love the way you put it.
2: You have to learn to take care of yourself as well. So you have to start caring about yourself and what you are going through and have compassion towards your own condition before you learn to have compassion for other beings Most people, like some people have the ability to be in a really messed up situation and have compassion for other people. But most people, you know, when you're dealing with homelessness, poverty, violence, et cetera, you know, when you have these lived realities, the prison industrial complex, you're less likely to care first for another being when you're going through so, so much on your own. So you have to really start to care for yourself and be able to start to lift yourself out of some of the things that you're going through in order to care about what other people are going through.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I totally agree. And people who are advocating for veganism have to pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. And and also, it turns out that you're not giving up anything by caring about others. It actually yeah. makes your life better, but you can't see that in the beginning. Yeah. All right. We need to get to uh, talking about what you're doing. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I really like Talking about what you're thinking, but uh, you're not just thinking about things, you're doing stuff. So tell us what supermarket is and first spell it and then tell us what it is.
2: So, supermarket is spelled S U P R M A R K T. We're a low cost organic grocery that makes it affordable for people to eat well in food deserts. We started by providing just weekly pop ups with organic produce, accepting EBT. And we've grown to become a delivery service, pickup and delivery service that serves, um, you know, delivers across Los Angeles and just helps people eat affordably in places where it's really hard to do. We also have a nonprofit foundation now that is focused on creating experiences that help people go vegan, whether it's the first vegan festival in South Central that we did last year or whether it's supporting people with 10 day juice cleanses that help them reverse serious conditions. So those are just some quick details about what we do.
1: I assume that the coronavirus quickened this up, that you're not doing the pop-up model anymore, mm-hmm. but that
2: you're doing deliveries. Is that working better for you? Or are you expanding? Well, yeah, actually we stopped doing the pop-ups. We already were doing um, pickup and deliveries on a smaller scale, but with the start of the virus, we completely shut down our pop-ups and only do pick up and deliveries now, and it is more streamlined. We can focus on just building people's bags and it makes more sense for us. And we probably won't do any more pop-ups until we actually get our physical. Well, we won't need pop-ups once we have our physical location unless we're doing events and things like that. Um, but our energy right now is just focused on doing everything we need to do to actually open a store.
1: Is this just produce or is it a wide variety of of different kinds of vegan foods?
2: So currently it's produce and bulk goods. So we have fruits, vegetables, nuts, and dates for the most part currently. Mm -hmm. At the actual store will be various kinds of vegan foods, prepared foods, cosmetics, sustainable goods, et cetera, all of which will be subsidized so that it can be at an affordable price for the community that we serve.
1: Wow, that's amazing. And how do you source your produce? And how do you keep it, you know, you're doing most... Either mostly organic or all organic um, I'm not sure, and that stuff can be pretty expensive. How do you source it and keep the prices down?
2: All of our produce is organic we work with organic wholesalers as well as local farmers who'll pick the food and bring it to us um, the day after so that's where we get most of our produce and As far as the pricing, we are powered by a volunteer team, so that helps with our overhead and things like that. And where needed, we subsidize the cost of the food through the nonprofit. But to keep it really simple, the way that we don't charge a lot for what we provide is we just don't charge a lot. I don't charge anything more than I would want to pay at a grocery store or be able to pay at a grocery store. I don't know where you live, but there's instances where you'll go in a store and it's three or four dollars for one avocado. You know I would never want anybody to pay two dollars for an avocado at the supermarket. So if it's expensive at that time, we just provide something else until the price goes back down and we get food that's available and you know in season and affordable where possible, that's how we keep the prices low. And I think it's important to note that that was always our intention from the beginning when we started. And when you start a business with an intention, it's easier to integrate it into your operations long term than when you get the idea midway.
1: That's a really interesting way of, of thinking about it. That if, if something, well, of course, I, have a, I live in upstate New York, so avocados <laughs> are probably a lot cheaper in <laughs> California anyway. But, but uh, the idea of, yeah, just not buying something right now if, if it's too expensive so that you can supply people with a lot of food. And there are so many kinds of produce that are not expensive even if it's organic. I mean, there's lots of uh, fruits and vegetables, particularly vegetables, that if you're focused on it and focused on doing that buying with an eye towards people not being able to afford just anything, you really can feed people very well on not that much money. I have a statistic here from an article as of October 2019 that you've transported more than 30,000 pounds of organic fruits and vegetables. We're up to
2: 70 now.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, it must be bigger than that. That's mm-hmm. a hell of a lot of fruits and vegetables. And you do it with a fairly small staff, is that right? Right. Or I, I imagine your staff is expanding as you go. I hope
2: that it does. We, that's what we need right now.
1: Tell us about the store, because this would be a hugely exciting development.
2: We launched a campaign in May of 2019 to open a full-service organic grocery in South Central at a place that used to be Caught Mister Wisdoms, which for about thirty years was one of the only places where you could get, you know, a wheatgrass shot or a veggie burger or anything anywhere in the neighborhood. And we were devastated to find out that it closed at the same time that we were devastated to learn of Nipsey Hussle's passing. Um, we were definitely directly impacted by the situation, and we really felt that it was time to continue his legacy of commitment to community and not just think about opening a store, but actually going about the steps to do what we need to do um, to do it. So we launched in Indiegogo. We had really awesome people back our campaign. Kat Von D, Issa Rae, Roy Choi, etc. And we had about 1,400 backers provide about $90,000 in donations. And we got additional donations from grants and things like that. And we're going to be launching the second part of our fundraising soon. But we're actually in escrow on the property. So maybe within the next couple of weeks, we'll have the keys to the place. Fingers crossed. Wow. After that, it's just going to be a matter of figuring out the build out. And, you know, like I've worked a lot in food and I'm on the board for a store for a co-op, et cetera, but I've never run a store. So it's just going to be a lot of community coming together to figure out the best way to do things and to really get um, everything together. Hopefully we'll be able to open early next year. That is amazing.
1: Wow, you are a powerhouse. And I love the fact that you were doing it in a, um, in a store that has this historical connection to people eating in, in healthy ways. And, you know, so it, it's not coming in as something new. It's coming in as something renewing, a spirit that's always been there. And you mentioned Nipsey Hussle. And and can you just tell us a little bit? I, I also, in addition to your mentioning him, I read that he was an inspiration for you. So can you just talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, so... I'm sure the audience will do their own research, but to make a long story short, Nipsey Hussle um, was 33 when he was murdered. He um, is from Los Angeles. He's a local rap artist that, as he began to get famous, his focus was always on investment and community. So many people, um, as they start to get money, you know, we're trained from a really young age to move out of our community, to hate everything that is our neighborhood and not to develop it. And he's one of the few people that stuck around, purchased property in his own neighborhood, opened up establishments. He opened an entire um, co-working space in a, in a neighborhood that nobody you know, would think to open a co-working space in. I just want to bring uh, attention to the fact that a food desert is not just a food desert. It's a design desert. It's an enterprise desert. There's so many things that living in South Central just means you don't have around. And it really affects people as they're growing up, as they're setting their intentions for life. There's a drought of creativity that happens. And it doesn't mean that people are not creative. People are really creative. But there's just not the resources available to make your dreams come true in the same way that there are in other parts of the of the city. And that, and that goes for communities across this country. And it's really a shame in Los Angeles because... Just like most of the food um, produce in this country comes from California, yet there are food deserts in LA and California, which doesn't make sense. It's the same thing as far as creativity, resources, money. You know, all of Los Angeles should be able to be prosperous. All of Los Angeles should be able to eat well. All of Los Angeles should be able to fulfill their talents. We shouldn't all have to go to Hollywood and Beverly Hills, et cetera, you know, just to be able to live like a normal human being, if that makes any sense. So, oh, it makes total sense. Long story short, NIP was an inspiration to young entrepreneurs everywhere and just young people in this area in general. We were, you know, maybe a couple of miles away. Like I could have walked to where it happened the day that he actually was killed. We were in Leimert Park and he was on Crenshaw Lawson. It was just devastating. It, it felt like a personal slap in the face because I feel like I believe he was assassinated and I feel that what was in him They were wanting to kill and other people. There's a lot of gentrification happening in Los Angeles. There's a lot of politics that are happening in South Central around what's going to be developed, what buildings are going to be built, et cetera, property values. And he was an example of how to take ownership over your own neighborhood and not be a victim of the circumstances. And so it was very devastating. And I pretty much committed at that point that, you know, with him passing, there need to be a hundred more Nipsey kind of figures that spring up in his place. Well, I love
1: the way you've taken a tragedy and turned it into an inspiration. That's such an important thing to be able to do. I mean, especially at this moment when tragedy just seems to be permeating all of our lives. But talking a little bit about the food, one of the things that is also difficult about living in places like South Central is cooking. You can give people good food, but they have to know how to prepare it. As you said, a lot of, you know, a lot of this culture has lost touch with these foods. Well, one of the things you lose touch with is being a good cook. And, you know, that can be lost in generation. Do you think that's a big impediment to people buying a bunch of vegetables can be very
2: intimidating to people who have not been cooking all their lives? That's a really great point. there are definitely people that still cook but they've been cooking differently but honestly with the way things have gone with the food industrial complex and you know there there's families that really live on a lot of fast food or sort of frozen prepackaged foods from the you know the stores that are in their area there are habits that have to be um, removed that are generational habits at this point and there there are things that have to be remembered. We're basically in a position where we need to remember what vegetables are for everybody in this country. Food is very different for people in this country. And we have to remember how to work with vegetables, how to use them and how to make them taste good. Those are things that, you know, we've come to rely on large corporations to feed us in a really unhealthy way. You know, we're way too dependent. We're way too dependent on these corporations. And most of us would be, quote unquote, asked out if anything were to happen with our food system tomorrow. Because we don't even know how to grow a piece of cilantro or anything, you know, like there's so many plants that people don't recognize. So a part of our work on the nonprofit side is education and creating content that reintroduces people to how to store food, how to, you know, pick food and how to cook food.
1: It's not a single note answer. There's a lot to this. I mean, also there's time. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of people are working too. maybe more jobs. And and one of the reasons people eat fast food is because it's fast. Uh,
2: right.
1: So, is that
2: also one one of the goals to make it simpler for people to make food? Definitely. That's why we want to have prepared food at our space. Um, mm-hmm. That's why it's going to be so important for us to be able to have four dollar, six dollar meals instead of them being fourteen dollars, and try to do smoothies for a a couple of bucks instead of like ten bucks, etc. It's going to be really important that we have the prepared food available, you know, for people that are on the go extremely important. And then thank you for pointing out the underlying issues that are there just economically. And even when it comes to space, like not everybody, you know, some of these apartments that you go into make you angry that the landlord has left this space like this literally for years and they're still collecting rent. They're still raising rent. Everybody doesn't have a space in which they can make food well or comfortably. Yeah. And so I I just think that there are so many issues and there's so much going on um, and we're just especially this year we're just starting to s- collectively peel back the layers and you know more of the public is starting to see what the actual issue is and the truth is we have a lot of work to do and the job of supermarket and superseed is just to do our part in that process and do as much as we can for people and you know having been through a lot of these experiences myself having lived in, in a lot of these places I have the benefit of knowing what it was I needed when I was in that place or what I wish someone would do or how I wish someone would help. And so all that I'm doing through supermarket and seed Super is just trying to give people a leg up in a way that I know would have helped me. So, you know, whether that's like coming and providing kitchen transformation kids, um, that's one of the programs we're going to have when we open cool. so that, hey. You know,
1: Tell me more about that.
2: Yeah. If you don't have in your cabinets, the spices that you need, or you have like a bunch of like really chemical laden things in your cabinets, you don't have mason jars, you don't have, a, you know, certain knives, et cetera, Like we will give people kits so that they can throw away some of the things that are not great for them and they can start fresh. When you're on a fixed budget, when you're low income and somebody's telling you like, Hey, you have to get rid of this, get rid of that, get rid of that. If you're very committed and very determined, you can do it. You can budget over time. You can take four months to try to put $20 aside each month to shop towards a better future. But, like you said, most people, like I'm, I don't have children. Like people have children, people have jobs. Like there's so many people that just can't get past that barrier. And our job is to take away some of the barriers that exist towards eating healthier, living a better life. So, we're just going to be doing more fun stuff like that. Like the things that I sort of, Experience needing help with. I'm just going to do my best to raise the money that's needed and work with brands to be able to help people in the ways I know I needed help.
1: That is such a cool idea. I love that, and I love the, the how many dimensions there are to it. And I'll tell you, I can pick up a cookbook, and you know, I'm I'm fine financially. And I open the front page. the The first chapter is always like the kitchen equipment that you need. I never have it all. <laughs> Like, I'm like, yeah, oh, I can't buy deals. all this stuff. Like everything. Right. So that is such a brilliant idea. The other idea that you're instituting, which you mentioned before, which I I, I want to revisit because I didn't go into it, was the juicing. Mm-hmm. And you're not
2: only doing juicing, but you're having
1: juicing scholarships.
2: Is that right? Right. So essentially with our seasonal juice cleanses, what we're doing is getting together, you know, up to 20 people in a group and providing a 10-day juice cleanse. And if they needed scholarships, either for the produce or for an actual juicer, if they need a juicer donated to them or for them to use, um, we would provide both of those things. And we've actually had at least two people reverse serious conditions, like chronic conditions, um, after doing the 10-day juice cleanse or use it as a stepping stone for them to change their life around. And so we're really inspired yeah. and proud of what we've seen. And it really just goes to show, you know, there's been... For such a long time, there's been this stereotype like, oh, people in these areas eat like this because they don't care or because they want to eat like this. There are so many people who want to change. And as soon as they know that there's different options, they want to switch those different options. But it's just like we mentioned, so challenging to do so in these areas. So we just provide support you know, for people to be able to do what they should already be able to do that billion dollars a day. you know, The money that this government is spending on so many things, it could really be helping people. And so we just do our best with what we have to help each other out. That's another really big point is that it's about people helping each other. If somebody has a juicer at home that they're not using um, or a blender at home that they're not using, you can share that with somebody that might not have the ability to purchase it at that time. Or you know, for some of these companies, they might have just extra blenders just sitting there that it could be really helping people that are very motivated to change their health. And so it's really about everyone doing what they can do one-on-one. And that's kind of like the spirit that we started with. We're obviously getting into more sort of like institutional, helping it in on a more institutional level now as we grow. But even if you're not establishing something like we have established, everyone can show their friends and family documentaries. Everyone can make a slight change in their diet. Everyone help somebody else make a change in their diet. You know, you can go to the grocery store and get like $10, $20 Gift cards, and you know, I've literally done this before. There's a video I was challenged to do something good with like 400 bucks, and you know, I literally got like Trader Joe's gift cards and went to the McDonald's drive-through and like gave it out to people. There's ways that humans can help each other, and we just have to remember and be creative enough, and also not be too weighed down by our own stress. You know, that's another really big problem is, especially in this country, everybody is so stressed, so busy. Nobody, you know, really has a break. There's a lot of people who are sort of living under just constant pressure. So it's hard. It's definitely hard. But, you know, we're just doing what we can to lighten everyone's load and remind people of how they can help each other.
1: Oh, God, I love all of that. It's very inspiring, Olympia. You're a very inspiring woman. I really hope this message, not only improves the lives of people in South Central, but but I, I hope this all spreads across the country because there are so many neighborhoods and so many places that could just benefit so much by this message. I love all of the different pieces of it. Thank you so much for joining us today on Our Hand House to, to tell people about it. I think they're going to want to know more about it. Just list for us the places where people can find
2: you and to support you. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So um, if you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit www.supermarket.la. So S-U-P-R-M-A-R-K-T.la. There you'll find links to articles that we've done, more about our background, and you can also um, check out our one for one program if you'd like to sponsor people in the community for them to have groceries. Um, you can go to supermarketla 14 You'll see the link once you get to the site. You can also go to supermarket.la/donate if you'd like to support us. Um, and help us power some of the programs that we're putting on. If you want to follow us on social media, on Instagram, we're SUPR.MRKT, And on Facebook, we're facebook.com slash suprmarkt. So we look forward to meeting some of you and we hope you guys enjoy this interview.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm sure people are going to love this interview and I'm sure anybody who's in LA is going to want to once we start going to stores again regularly. <laughs> it's going to want going to want to be at the opening of yours and to sign up for your deliveries. So there's so much going on. It's so exciting. Thanks for sharing it.
0: Hi, everybody. This is Jasmine. And this is Marianne. And we have a very important announcement for you today, which is to please join the flock already.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I guess we've never, we've probably never mentioned that before, right? I don't think we have, no.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but it's like now is more important than ever to join it because now is when we really need media that is speaking the truth about animals. And that is what our hen house does. So by joining the flock, you are supporting media such as our hen house to keep going. And we literally could not do it without your support. So for $10 a month or $100 a year, you will become part of this super special insider crew, the flock.
1: Yes. And in addition to supporting us, which is really the reason we hope that you will join the flock, we try to make it worth your while. And I think we really do because we've got this terrific flock page, which is a private Facebook page only for members of the flock. And the conversations there of late have been outstanding.
0: So good. I know. It's like a private only Facebook group just for the flock. It's thought provoking, it's supportive, it's encouraging. And there's lots of resources there that. I didn't know about. And so I'm just always so grateful to our conversations there. And in addition to that, we provide bonus flock only content every single week. It's like an additional little podcast just for you, for the flock. And it's fantastic. Yeah, actually,
1: you know, it was, it was a big decision to start doing that. Cause it was a lot of extra work right in the beginning. But now that we've got it going, I'm so glad we did because I really love those little interviews. I think they're
0: turning out great. They really are. They are sort of blowing my mind every week, week after week. So join the flock by going to OurHenHouse.org, clicking on Donate, and for $10 a month or $100 a year, you will become a flock member and we will also be offering you exclusive access to our undying love and affection. (laughs) Thank you so much, everybody. Thanks if you're in the flock already and thanks if you're about to be. Thank you.
1: Anxieties are rising. Our first column is from Rick Berman, who is now doing a regular column on meetingplace.com. He is, of course, the executive director of the Center for Consumer Freedom and not actually my favorite person, I would say, not (laughs) to say the least. Um, All right. Food companies mugged by reality on activist pledges. This piece is both very depressing and completely infuriating. As you may recall, uh, over the past 10 years or so, one of the projects of many animal activist groups was getting uh, restaurants and supermarkets to make pledges to buy, say, cage-free eggs or pork from pigs who are not entrapped in gestation crates. And So these these retailers agreed to it and they set the deadline really far out. And we all thought, hmm, is this really going to work? No. But, you know, what does Rick Berman care about that? We care about that. But what does he care? He cares about it because he wants to somehow blame us for this. He wants to he wants to blame activist groups. Many of these retail companies have figured out that they've been sold a bill of goods after they got bullied by activist groups into making these pledges. So uh, World Animal Protection put out a report saying uh, that, you know, these companies are not stepping up to the line. And 56 companies who made promises to eliminate gestation crates, only two have actually implemented it. Those two, Chipotle and Whole Foods, were already doing it uh, 20 years ago. That was part of their original policy. HSUS also put out an industry scorecard reporting on the de- these developments. And The survey of a hundred companies find that many have quietly retreated on their pledges, even apparently removing the commitments altogether. I don't know where they removed them from. Maybe their websites, it doesn't say their brains. Uh the reality, I don't know. But according to Rick, everyone knew this was coming. You know, it was according to him, it was apparent ten years ago that these retailers had no idea if they could source enough to comply. Well, you know, they're the buyers. So if this is what they want to buy then that is what the industry will produce and they will uh, spend money and make their products more expensive. This was the whole plan. But, you know, apparently retailers nowadays have absolutely no control over suppliers, even though they're enormous retailers. Uh, you know, this came as a total shock to them, even though the industry knew it was coming, the industry knew it was coming because they they didn't have any intention of 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 doing this. It sounds like they were all in cahoots to me. The egg industry is the same. There won't be the supply of cage-free eggs to meet the demands. So, you know, apparently, the the activists do a deal with the retailers. The retailers say they'll only sell this. And the retailers apparently did not do the deal with the uh with the factory farms and and meat processing plants and slaughterhouses. So, you know, oh, I want to kill somebody. I'm not supposed to say that. Forget I said that. There are good animal welfare arguments to be made as well, according to Rick. A three-year study performed by the Coalition for Sustainable Egg Supply, that sounds sounds like a neutral group, doesn't it? Found cage-free systems had higher mortality rates. And veterinarians support the use of individual maternity pens, my preferred term for gestation stalls, individual maternity pens. Oh, my God. This isn't even where the pigs pigs are are born, and you know it's not like it's it's the farrowing cage. It's the it's the ones that they're in for their pregnancy, like trapped in there. Uh, oh my god, individual maternity pens. I have no idea whether cage tree systems have a higher mortality rate than um, cage systems. It seems unlikely, but it se- also seems possible because cage tree systems are in themselves absolutely horrible. Those birds are packed in there, and maybe they die faster. Like, it just proves that that the egg industry, regardless of, of what system they're using, is horrifying. The birds may have a little bit more freedom, a little tiny bit more freedom to move around. And as a result, they might be more prone to injury and death. So it doesn't sound impossible to me. That's really not the point, is it? The activists, he says, have bitten off more than they can chew. Exactly how did the activists bite off more than they can chew? Was it up to the activists who, to do this? Like they didn't have to chew anything. And we'll compound this by putting pressure on companies to keep unrealistic pledges. How dare they? How dare they ask companies to keep up their to keep their promises? It's just an outrage. Oh my God, this article makes me crazy. All right, from our friends at Plant-Based News, um, advertising giant receives federal complaint over, quote, misleading dairy claims. Right, this is some advertising. I I never heard of the milk pep. It has something to do with advertising. And they have come under fire after describing cow's milk as, quote, an exercise recovery drink for all Americans. Well, ooh, can you imagine like after exercising, coming in and having a glass of like dairy? Anyway. This was a, about a complaint that was filed by switch for good, and the complaint requests milk Pep retract and correct its claim that drinking fat- free milk after exercise replenishes lost electrolytes and rehydrates better than a sports drink or water. Well, that seems to me like really, really unlikely. And aside from which it doesn't account for the facts that the fat free milk is is bad for you in in other ways because it's full of animal protein, even assuming that were true, which I don't think it is, but even assuming it is, because, you know, as again, as I say 25 times a day, what do I know? The study itself, this is the study that they're basing this on, was based on seven healthy males of Irish extraction. Well, obviously, people of Irish extraction, and I should know this because, you know, Marianne Bernadette Sullivan, don't have lactose intolerance, you know? like if there's if there's one group of people that is uh well tuned in to to drinking milk dairy um you know northern europeans in general and i think the irish maybe more than anybody i don't know why i'm saying that but it seems likely cuz you know milk i sure was expected to grow up on it so that's a pretty pathetic study and it 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 means that they have totally left out the probability that many and many of these Um, Exercisers And remember, they're saying this is a great exercise recovery drink for all Americans. Apparently, they think all Americans are of Irish extraction because there are plenty who are lactose intolerant. So they're going to actually get sick from this stuff. The West is burning. What are the solutions? All right. This is from MeetingPlace.com, the Meet Your Markets column by Matt Graves. He has three causes and potential possible solutions. To the fires. First, he points out that climate change is an enormous factor. And, you know, good for him. He's willing to admit that climate change matters, which, you know, a hell of a lot of people aren't. The scientific consensus is that human caused climate change with the increased emissions of carbon dioxide and to a lesser extent, methane has undoubtedly made our climate hotter and drier, enabling more fires which behave in extreme, unpredictable ways. Okay, let's put that aside for a second. His second solution is forest management, it doesn't have to do with. The president's uh, suggestion that we sweep the forest, but he he does say we have to selectively remove trees to reduce fire risk. Well, I don't know. You know, you know what do I know? That's not my area. And finally, is cattle grazing? It, no, not not to eliminate cattle grazing because that's the problem. No, to, to institute cattle grazing um, in forests, on rangelands and grasslands, so they eat all the combustibles and leave a less flammable floor. Yep. Now, for one thing, the more cattle you have, the worse your climate change is going to get. So even if this works, you're you're actually causing the problem as you're, solu- as you're fixing it. Also, he he points out that his source for this information is Amanda Redke in Beef Daily. Hmm. Reliable source? Hmm. I'm not so sure. And he, then he does point out There are other studies and advocates that caution on the use of cattle and or sheep grazing rangelands and even forests as a wildlife dampener. Yeah, I bet there are. No, the cattle industry is not the solution to the fires. All right, finally, this is just a tiny one. I'm not going to go through the whole story because it goes on and on and on and on. CAB names first ever sustainability award honoree. A CAB is, oh, what is it? It's the Angus Beef uh, Association the Council of INGES Beef or something like that. They're awarding two of their companies sustainability award. And, And they have this big picture of a feedlot and guys on horses and all these cows. Well, good for them. I hope they're really proud of their sustainability award. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties.
0: Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and you're able in these difficult times, you can support us by joining our flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at at ourhenhouse. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Headhouse as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, and to composer Michael Herron for the music. Thanks to Podcast Haven for their work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez. We will be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook group on Tuesday for your bonus content and join us on Fridays for Flock Fridays where we do some really cool Zooms that you'll want to join. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Jasmine Singer. Be safe out there. Social distance, social distance, Stay home, wash your hands, and listen to podcasts.